I'm Cedar Lewison, and you're about to listen to one of the stories from my book, The First 14,439 Words. All the stories are written by me, and they're written in the spirit of text as artwork. I work as an artist and writer and curator, and I've written a lot of different short stories, almost as if the stories are sculptures. I'm interested in the idea of writing by visual artists and novels by visual artists, and all these stories are written in that way. So although the stories are narrative, they're also kind of like artworks in a way. They're often written in response to a location or in response to a feeling or emotion, but I kind of see them as sculptures. And I'm really happy to have other people that I don't know read the stories, because in a way that brings them to life and turns the sculptures into real things like sound artworks. So they're a bit quirky. I hope you enjoy them and I hope you'll come back and listen to them next time. The January Sacrifice. There was a painting in the National Gallery in London dated 1575 by the little-known Flemish painter Peter von Heisemann. The title, The January Sacrifice, gives some clue as to the work's macabre and somewhat ritualistic subject matter. In the image, a typical winter scene in the Belgian town of Antwerp is shown. The buildings and taverns are sprinkled with ice. It appears to be late afternoon as the sun is setting and the winter sky is dark. There are no people to be seen in the artist's depiction of medieval city life. What is so strange and ultimately disturbing about the painting is when looked at closely, it's possible to make out that the artist has placed around the image a large number of what are clearly dead cats. Someone was killing cats in South East London. For the first few weeks, nobody noticed. But after the 15th or 16th case in a three month period, people really did start to pay attention. This was either some messed up gang of kids or something else, something sicker and more worrying. The cats were usually decapitated and left in the middle of the road. Sometimes their fur had been completely removed and there was at least one case on record where a cat, a ginger tabby, had had its eyeballs dyed blue before being injected with arsenic. Cat owners were hysterical as you can imagine. What type of monster was doing this? So far, the cat killings had all taken place within the SE4, SE15 and SE16 postcodes. Broccoli, Peckham and Nunhead. At Peckham Nick, Detective Super Nigel Reese was leading investigations. I didn't get the impression he was taking the case very seriously, judging by his appearance on BBC London News. The Beebs Alice van der Carvey was given fairly short thrift. DSI Reese looked slick and polished as usual. A sheep in wolf's clothes or maybe a politician in training. Crime is good for business, but it needs to be the right crime. He had no time for someone killing cats, but I did. 
One of my regular contacts at a Sunday red top had called the office and wanted a different angle on the story. They thought it had legs. I decided to take a walk to Bellingdon Road. I checked the odds on the afternoon's races and put a cheeky score on the two o'clock at Lingfield Park. Avenue's Phillies handicap, class four, eight runners, going good, good to soft in places. As I was leaving the turf accountants, I saw Julia Clues walking along the road. Julia works in the veterinary surgery on Chadwick Road. She looked panicked and slightly distressed. Unusual, as she's normally a very calm and grounded lady. I caught up with her and asked what was going on. Julia was not keen on saying much, but from what she did say, I had this strong impression that vet surgeries all over London were reporting the same feedback. Cat owners did not want to let their beloved muggies out of sight and surgeries had been receiving crank calls. I told her to give me a bell straight away if she had any problems I could help with. Julia scurried off looking just as stressed out as before. She had been holding a letter from a cat sanctuary in Lewisham. I made a mental note of the address. Back at the office, I asked Antoinette to look into the history of animal killers and I decided to head to the cat rescue home in Lewisham. Outside the rescue centre, the window was full of adverts for cats needing homes. This type of low-level public advertising always gives me a perverse sense of amusement. There is Dixon, a domestic short-hair crossbreed, black and white, approximately one year in age. There was a little photograph, a note which read, Dixon is a neutered Tom who came into our care after being abandoned by his owner. He is a happy, go-lucky, carefree, affectionate, creative lad who is always looking for adventure. He's not been a bit of bother while he's been with us. He's very clean in his pen. Can you offer this young lad a home? Then there is Billy Boy, also a domestic short hair crossbreed, colour ginger, aged five years approximately. The longer text read, Billy Boy is a very big boy. Before we took him in, he was roaming the streets of Peckham. The poor lad had been badly injured when we found him and his front leg was infected and had to be amputated. Billy Boy now gets around fine on three legs. Billy Boy has a few other battle scares. If he could talk, we'd love to hear his stories. Maybe he'll tell them to you one day. There were about a hundred of these cats needing home signs. Inside the order of the rescue center hit hard. It was a deeply unpleasant wall of ammonia. Walking through the smell was a physical experience. The combined effects of years and years of cat piss. Gut-wrenching. Karen Reynolds, who runs the place, is the archetypal cat lady. Mid-fifties, surely a long-time single, and crazy as a box of frogs. She looks like she's been wearing the same stain-splattered dress for a month. This is matched with a pair of calf-high Ugg boots surrounded by all those abandoned cats cooped up in little plastic cages. All screaming away, Mrs. Reynolds was not pleased to see me to put it mildly. She basically told me to go back to Africa and that my kind, with all their voodoo, hate cats. She also shouted at me something about the house of rhetoric of the metropolis. And why didn't I do something about the local kids who put shit through her door? 
I made a swift exit. The woman clearly has a strong relationship to cats, humans, I'm not so sure about. I updated the office and thought about getting some lunch. I was in the mood for some curry goat and rice. I knew a good place at the other end of Lewisham High Street. Over lunch, I looked through the photos again. Around 80 images of decapitated and disemboweled cats. Really not nice. After about 20 minutes of looking, there seemed to be nothing coherent linking all these cat killings. Was I missing some kind of pattern? I was still waiting for the results on the perforation marks to see if the same knife that was cutting these poor little fellows' heads off. One photo did stand out, a black tabby surrounded by blobs of gummy blood. The stomach had been sliced open as with the other cats. The photograph had been taken at night and the flash of the camera highlighted the little cat's dead eyes. I looked closely and double-checked and it seemed as if the cat's claws had been pulled out. I know of some extreme branches of Chinese medicine that use seemingly bizarre ingredients, so I finished my lunch and decided to pay my old friend Mr. Wu a visit down in W1D. Chinatown was buzzing. The roads were covered in red and gold paper lanterns. It was packed with crowds of people, tourists taking photos, people looking for a restaurant, the normal Chinatown scene. I made my way to Gerard Street, past the bars, Asian supermarkets and bakeries, windows full of red crispy baked duck, the sleazy handwritten massage notices and the offers of alternative medicine. Down an old metal staircase through a smoke-filled room of Chinese men having an afternoon card session and I was at Mr. Wu's door. I rang the bell. A light from the CCTV camera blinked red and the door opened. Mr. Wu, or Chinese John as he is known in South London, had his white doctor's coat on. He looked older than I remembered him, his wispy beard now fully grey. We drank green tea and I asked him my questions. Has he heard of anyone wanting or trying to sell parts of dead cats? Mr. Wu was thoughtful and measured with his words. Now, I wouldn't say I trusted him, but I knew from years of business dealings that there was a certain code of honour he worked by. He looked over the photos as he drank his tea and chain-smoked Red Pagoda Mountains. Wu had stubs where his ring finger and pinky should have been on his left hand, and the stub on his right where half of his thumb had been removed. Card debts. He discreetly told me that any unusual animal ingredients he or his medical colleagues might need, they had their own trusted suppliers. There was usually a direct link to the old country. They would never risk using an unknown entity. Way too risky. Particularly some crazy making so much bad publicity. I thanked him and passed over some unrelated information I knew he needed related to a Ukrainian billionaire in London. As I was walking out of the door, Mr. Wu called me back. This help you, he said, and passed me a postcard. It was an image of the painting, The January Sacrifice. I came back out onto Gerard Street. It looked like it was about to rain. The sky was grey above me and the conspiracy of ravens passed overhead. The world was dark and it felt like it was about to get darker. I called Antoinette and updated her. 
he suggested that as I was in the area, I should walk down to the National Gallery and have a look at the painting in the flesh. I walked through the crowds down to Newport Street, past Leicester Square Station. There was a homeless guy selling magazines, which looked a bit like the big issue, but it was something else. You got a drop of blues, Gov, he asked. The magazine had a distorted portrait of George Orwell on the cover. I could not resist. I gave the seller two pounds for a copy. I looked on the title page and found the publication was called The Nerve Meter. Inside the gallery, I asked an attendant which room the painting was in. I sensed a slight hesitation in his reply before he told me the room number and gave directions to find it. I walked through the mass of tourists taking selfies in front of masterpiece after masterpiece. I did not bother stopping to look at anything. Finally, I found the painting. It was a small thing, 28 centimetres by 32 centimetres, and rather unremarkable, if I'm honest. If it wasn't for the smattering of decapitated felines, surely this painting would be relegated to the dustbin of art history. I read the little label next to the work. It was of not much practical use. One detail that I noticed was that the painting had been bequested to the National Gallery for the Nation anonymously in 1987. I wondered if there was someone at the NGA I could speak to, to find out more. It did not take me long to think of who I needed to call. Geraldine Edwards is not your typical art conservator. She is currently doing her PhD in painting restoration in relation to medieval torture scenes in European art. Her interest in human pain goes a little further than the academic, however. At weekends and some evenings, Geraldine is a dominatrix and bondage queen. She's into industrial techno and pain. Don't ask me how I know her. Anyway, I know she works regularly with the National Gallery, so I gave her a call and explained what I'm looking into. We arranged to meet later that evening and I headed back to Peckham. At Daphne's cafe, Reggie fills the room as normal. John Holt's police and helicopters is the tune playing as I walk through the door. And the Babylon box in the background, an episode of Jeremy Kyle. Even though you are in prison, the baby is still yours. The show title makes me laugh. How many guys in Brixton HMP do I know who have been given that line? Too many times I've heard, baby daddy is not baby daddy. On the table opposite me, a kid who looks about 14 is sitting with what I'm guessing is his mother and a parole officer, social worker type. The scene brings back memories of my youth. The posters on the wall feature images of Nelson Mandela and a hundred great black inventors. There is a little boy running around the place and his mother is sitting at a table looking at her phone and eating a plate of fried chicken with rice and peas. I order a soursop juice and phone Antoinette who gives me some information about possible leads for the cat deaths. She tells me that three more cats have been found today. The perforation results are back and are very interesting. Not only is it the same knife splicing up these poor little cats, but it's a very distinctive type of blade. Certainly some sort of antique medical tool, and it could be over a hundred years old. Added to that, all the cats have had their internal organs removed before being laid in the road. This of course leads to the question, what is the cat killer doing with all those tabby hearts, livers and kidneys? 
my little brother Kingston comes into Daphne's for some dinner. I take a moment to ask him if he or any of his friends know anything about the cats. Everyone is talking about it, he says. It's twisted, but it's definitely not local kids or gangs. No one he knows has got a beef with cats. I leave him to his meal, kiss Daphne goodnight, and make my way home. A couple of hours later, at punishment in Vauxhall, the no-wanking sign sets the scene of the place. It's dark and the floors are covered in spilt booze. The goth S&M crowd have made an impressive effort. There are gimps in rubber, women in tiny hot pants bare their breasts, but for small masking tape stickers, this a real dirty dance hall. In the main room, the light seems to be candlelit with an orange glow. I stand on the balcony and watch from above as various people in the play area below are whipped and spanked. A man with a horse bridle and leather seat is crawling around on all fours, while a partner dressed in rubber riding gear with a silver and diamond encrusted riding crop smacks him every few minutes with screams of, walk on. I made my way through the club past various scenes of Epicurean wonder to a backroom dance floor. I think the song playing is a Nine Inch Nails Apex Twins remix, but I'm not 100% sure. Behind the decks, Geraldine is drinking vodka and coke and smoking an elongated cigarette. I wait for her to finish her set and we move to the comfortably crowded smoking area. She tells me about the painting, The January Sacrifice. It does not actually belong to the National Gallery, but is a long-term loan from private owners. The painting's owners are an eccentric Belgian family of millionaires. Miss Catherine K. Verheeren is the current head of the family and takes care of all business matters. The Verheerens are well-known philanthropists and fund good deeds all around the planet, with a particular interest in developing countries in Africa. Now, there is a slight irony to this, as the Verheeren family fortune was made from Galton mines in the Congo. They ruthlessly stripped the country's minerals in order to keep the mobile phones and computer circuit boards of the world running smoothly. Geraldine goes on that the painting's macabre subject matter often draws complaints from the public. But as the loan of the work also comes with massive amounts of cash to the museum, which would immediately be stopped if the painting were removed from display, as can easily be understood, the painting stays on the museum walls, no matter how many calls for it to be removed are made. The artist Peter von Heisemann also has a strange biography. He was known to be a member of an ancient European sect which had roots in Egyptian rituals and beliefs. Though his works are largely overlooked by museums, there is a tiny but extremely high-end market for Van Hesemann's paintings. Geraldine tells me that all of the artist's known works features cats in some way. Very unusual in Flemish painting, and the precise allegorical meaning of this has never been proved. Some scholars on Van Heisemann think the cats represent a metaphor for society's ills. Promiscuity, deviant sexuality, and general moral decay. Fitting for the club in which we are having this conversation, I think to myself. Geraldine concludes that some experts think the cat was symbolic of Van Heisemann's secret sect and the rituals they performed. I leave the club and emerge inconspicuously into the early morning Vauxhall air. The roads are still busy with night buses and black taxis. The red and white lights of the vehicles leave traces of colour as they speed past. New tower blocks dwarf the Victorian railway arches that I am standing under. 
This is London. I see a gang of drunk and rowdy suits who must have been out all night. Then I realize they are not your typical corked up city boys, but are actually all holding Bibles. Something strange is going on there. They stagger off into the darkness. Later that morning, I made contact with Catherine Verheeren. On the phone, she seems smooth and reserved, icy even. Any surprise she may have had from hearing from me is well hidden. She suggests we meet at All Saints Cemetery later that day. It takes me a moment to realize she's talking about Nunhead Cemetery. When I arrive, Verheeren is alone, except for a chauffeur, who stands a polite but watchful distance away. The cemetery is full of gravestones and temple-like graves dated from the 1840s onwards. All families buried together. There are angels carved from stone, crumbling moss-covered graves that have fallen to the ground, and huge crucifix crosses. The sun is shining and the air smells of jasmine. But here and is tending to a discreet plot which is guarded over by a large Egyptian sphinx. The creature is holding a cysterium in one hand and an Aegeus in the other. Verheeren is clearly a boss lady. Slightly gaunt looking, cropped black hair, thick rimmed Prada glasses, her small hands wrapped in dark red leather gloves. The style is low key, but there is no mistake in it. She looks like money. She does not get up to shake my hand, but nods my presence quite formally and continues to remove weeds from the plot. We low countries people are not the same as the British, she says. We have a different history and different values, she goes on to say that her family have always respected British history and traditions. The grave she is tending to belongs to a Nottingham-born mystic, Tiara Hooley. Hooley gave her family much advice in the early 1900s. He travelled with her great-grandfather to the Congo and then lived with them in Antwerp. When he died in 1939, his body was returned to London and buried here in Nunhead. And it is his instructions she still strictly lives by. Under Huli's teaching, the Maro breed of cat, whose lineage can be traced back to ancient Egypt, is worshipped like a god. For her and true believers, all other cats are vermin. This verheerance suggests maybe why someone has taken it upon themselves to start removing cats from London streets. It was obvious now that this rather prim and correct Belgian woman tending a grave in front of me was directly connected to the recent spate of cat killings. Of course she would not have been there at the scene of the crime, but her money would have funded it. I just have one question. Why focus on South London? Behiran smiles condescendingly at me and says, if the goddess Basset wanted to send a message, who are we mortals to question the locations where that message should have been delivered? I know there will be no way any crime could ever be connected to Catherine Behiran. But she also knows that I am as close as anyone will ever be to exposing her. I am confident we will have seen the end of the cat killings in London. I give for hearing a parting glance. It's a transfixing moment. For a second or so, I stare deeply into her red-brown eyes. They are more like shiny pieces of glass than eyes. I see no sign of a soul. I don't really want to think about what kind of wickedness for hearing and her cult members did with all them cats they killed. 
it wouldn't take long to find out. Some quick research into the occult teachings of the Harahuli, and I am confident all will be revealed. As I am leaving the cemetery, I pick up on the subtle smell of jasmine again. My phone rings. It's Antoinette. It's kicking off at the National Gallery. Get over there fast. I jump on the Harley and I'm in Trafalgar Square within 13 minutes. Inside the museum, the scene is chaotic. Security guards running around shouting into walkie-talkies, hundreds of tourists and gallery goers being ushered out of the building. The room which houses the January sacrifice painting has been taken over by protesters. They wave banners which say, stop the cat killings and down with the house of rhetoric of the metropolis. Typically for London, there are more tabloid photographers and film crews than protesters. I guess it helps that three of the five protesters are topless young women with slogans sprawled on their naked chests. The leader of the protest is fully dressed, however. It's clearly a slightly dowdy woman wearing a green balaclava. Despite the balaclava, I instantly recognise the lead protester as Karen Reynolds from the Cat Rescue Home in Lewisham. Her Ugg boots and filthy dress remain unchanged. To gasps and cries of stop and no, Karen pulls out a standing knife from her handbag and viciously slashes at the January sacrifice painting. This image is a symbol of the murder and torture of cats around the world by perverts and devil worshippers, she screams, as a group of police dressed in riot gear rush in and force her to the ground. Detective Supernatural reads casually saunters over and reads Karen her rights. Geraldine is going to have her hands full piercing that one back together. I leave the National Gallery and call my bookie to check the results of yesterday's two o'clock at Lingfield Park. I did not win. The homeless guy from the day before is still there, selling his weird magazine. I look up at Nelson's column and call the newspaper I'm working for and give them the whole story. This is Cedar. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the short story. If you'd like to find out any more information about me and my work, you can visit my website, cedarlewison.com. I'm also on Insta. So Cedar is C-E-D-A-R. Lewison is L-E-W-I-S-O-H-N. Visit the website, check out Insta, and thanks again for listening, and bye for now.